Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining us for another round of Cosmic Cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's angry little world. And we try to do this objectively, putting aside preconceived notions and assumptions, rising above the contradictory rhetoric of partisan politics. Our goal is to let the spirit inhabit the human, to see the world from a higher vantage point, and to let our higher selves guide our human selves. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore the dysfunction in our world. It doesn't mean we spend all day with our heads in the sand going, la, 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 la. It's not happening. Quite the contrary, in fact. What we need today is a good dose of honesty. Self-honesty, collective honesty. We need to look at the world we have co-created through our spiritual alignment or lack thereof and decide what we want to do about it. This show exists primarily to encourage we the people to connect the dots, to see through Deep State's relentless campaign of perceptual engineering. Yes, folks, it's time to reclaim our minds, to open our hearts, and to move our civilization into the light. And we do this on this show anyway by answering your questions, so keep them coming. Let's talk. Let's remind each other how to debate, how to discuss sensitive subjects with respect and with cool heads. The purpose of debate is to expand consciousness for the betterment of mankind, to explore new ideas. A debate is not an argument to be won. It is an arena for collective growth. So stop shouting at each other. And while we're at it, Stop screaming at each other on social media. It's absolutely embarrassing. When you're posting on social media, just pretend you're either with that person or if you can't stand that one-to-one warm, fuzzy interaction, pretend you're talking to them via Skype and they can see you or that old-fashioned thing we used to have the telephone. You know, don't scream at each other. And say, well, there's no consequences because I'm not really communicating. If you're sending somebody a message, you are communicating and good manners apply in all situations. So here's a word of advice to myself as well as you all. Let's all shut up and listen to each other once in a while. We might learn something new.
Occasionally, when we're presented with new evidence, new research, we could even decide to rethink and possibly change our minds. Oh my God, how refreshing would that be? But unfortunately, most peeps today would rather pluck their eyes out than open their minds. Well, for those who don't wish to live life as small-minded, boxed-in, blind curmudgeons, send your questions to me and we'll talk about it. Your emails go to arnie at arnieabadician.com and if you prefer snail mail, apparently lots of you do, please send your postcards to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, United States of America. And just a reminder, peeps, uh, because, you know, you're not listening to me here. Just a reminder that if you leave your questions on my voicemail, they will be deleted faster than Deep State deletes their opponents. And that's quite fast. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? What's on everyone's mind? Oh, my God. Guess what? I think tomorrow is I'm glad I'm not a turkey day. Yes. So happy Thanksgiving. Let me take this opportunity to wish Americans everywhere a very happy Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you all have a great deal to be thankful for. And I hope that you're with friends and family, providing, of course, you like your friends and family, and that's a good place to be. So, Thanksgiving holiday. What's it all about? What's it all about in America anyway? Because we're not the only nation that has Thanksgiving holidays. So I wanted to do a little bit of research uh, to see when did it start and, and why. Because I suspect, you know, the version that we were taught in schools, that's the sanitized, homogenized version of events. You know, that's the thing that we call fake news these days. You take a grain of truth and color it according to your paymaster's instructions. Well, anyway, what do we know about Thanksgiving in America? I think 1620, I do know for a fact, during the great Puritan migration of the 17th century, a group of English separatists boarded the Mayflower and headed out to North America. So I call them separatists because that's what they were and that's what they called themselves. I don't think anyone referred to them as pilgrims until much later, probably circa 1870, something like that. So these separatists, these uh, Puritan separatists, they landed somewhere on the shores of Cape Cod, uh, 1621. And I suppose they sent out some scouting parties and uh, then they landed in Plymouth Harbor, which they thought was a decent place. And they proceeded to build a permanent settlement there. So if I read the school books... They will tell us that the first Thanksgiving feast was in Plymouth, uh, now Massachusetts. Um, oh, and I said that word correctly, in 1621. And they'll tell us that it was a lovely affair with the separatists and the local tribes enjoying all manner of goodly culinary delights in a warm, convivial and friendly atmosphere. Hmm, I wonder... Well, you dig around a bit and there is indeed historical evidence to suggest that such a feast took place. But there seems to be no hard evidence that the native population were in attendance as guests. Uh, we do know from records that the tribal chief, Massasoit, 
maintained good relationships with the separatists. Why wouldn't you want to maintain good relationships with people who come to your country and they have guns? So, you know, it's possible that he called on them around the time of the feast. Maybe it was a diplomatic gesture. Maybe the separatists were going around shooting all sorts of things, you know, trying to get food because, uh, you know, that's how you get food in those days, especially you kill the animals. And so maybe Massasoit said, what's all this noise? What's all this shooting? And he went to check it out. Who knows? But what we do know is there's no formal evidence that the locals were invited to be part of a feast, as far as I can make out. So was that fake news? Or as the Puritans in the day would say, was that fallacious tittle-tattle? Well, the history books would have us believe that the early relations between the separatists and the uh, Wampanoag tribe were very, very cordial, and that the locals taught the separatists to cultivate crops, which I'm sure they did, but I'm not sure that it was all that cordial. And then there was that Pequot War of 1637, which various accounts exist that apparently the separatists thought that the locals had killed one of their own. And so they burnt down a village and massacred 500 people and the whole thing. It's not about that at all, really, is it? It's all about control over resources. I think the more we poke around the subject, we will find the more carefully calculated errors in reporting. So enough to say for now that the romantic schoolroom version is probably a crock of turkey poo. And if we want to learn as much as we can about those early days, we should, uh, well, maybe talk to some of the native historians, the law keepers of the local tribes, in addition to the other sources. Because to the victor goes the spoils, and whoever thinks has won the war, they send to write their version of events, don't they? So moving forward, uh, we do know that in 1789, President George Washington designated November 26th of that year as a day of thanksgiving for the nation um, under its new federal constitution. But the day did not become an official national holiday until, I believe, 1863, and that was Abraham Lincoln's tenure, and he issued the proclamation of Thanksgiving, apparently from a request uh, from the writer and a noted editor, Sarah Josepha Hale. And she was the one who asked that Thanksgiving become permanently an American custom and institution. And for those of you who don't know who Sarah Hale was, she wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb. And she did a lot more than that, of course. Um, she, I think, was instrumental in the finishing of the... Uh, the remembrance for the Bunker Hill battle. And, uh, you know, she was a noted editor, but we're always going to remember her because Mary had a little lamb. So Thanksgiving, yeah, you know, at this time, it was a good idea. President Lincoln um, had a very good idea with this because at that time, the country was divided by civil war. Friends were divided. Families were divided by civil war. And they thought that uh, having a visual of the early days, having this uh, fake news visual of pilgrims and local tribes coming together to eat together and celebrate together would be a sort of a unifying, a unifying thing. Well, whatever happened, I think it's up to us to breathe new life into this old custom. Families and friendships, yes, they fell apart during the Civil War, and you know it's happening again today. It really is. So let's declare Thanksgiving Day 
a day of reconciliation and mutual respect. And if by the end of the weekend we haven't all killed each other, well, we can give thanks for that, can't we? So happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and Americans, uh, all of you who are expats, wherever you are, I hope you find turkey and those dreadful candied yam gooey things that you like to eat and cranberry sauce, and uh, I just hope you have a wonderful time. I have a lot to give thanks for this year. I will take up the whole show to tell you how much I have to give thanks for. So I'm not going to. I'm just going to say, gosh, happy Thanksgiving. I'm so happy right now. I could bust, but I won't because I've got this show to do. So let's have a little sip of this martini, which is damn good. And let's move on to, well, the main portion of the show, which is Q&A, questions and answers. That's what we're here for. So I'm going to take a look in my little sorting hat here. And I do wonder what weird and wonderful questions we have today. So let's pick one and let's start somewhere. All right, here we go. Our first question today, it comes from a chap who lives in Owensboro uh, in Kentucky. And he doesn't want to have his name read aloud. It's okay, I'll whisper. Okay, this chap, he says, my grandmother believes that tarot cards are the work of the devil and that the messages received are designed to infest our minds with demonic notions. And that's all he wrote. Well, um, I think possibly your grandmother has been at the Kentucky Bourbon, and that it may have infested her mind with silly notions. Look, lots of people believe lots of things about lots of things. Tarot cards, I think they started out in China. They were little wooden blocks and people played with them it wasn't taken so seriously for divination uh, probably with the moors it came over to the south of spain and then to the rest of europe by the middle ages we had the taroki a set of cards that people played games with it wasn't so much for divination even then and at some point, someone took this idea and started to, you know, say, OK, the trumps mean this and the smaller suits mean this. And uh, this particular suit goes with this particular season and the numerical values were added to it. Really and truly, it's pieces of paper with images on them that can be used as a tool for focusing the mind, just like runes, just like anything, really. So the devil, my darling, is in our minds. It really is there designed to keep us afraid from exploring the glory of our divinity. Because if you understand that everything is divine and that there's no opposite to the divine and everything in the entire cosmos is a manifestation of divine energy, good, bad, ugly in between, it's just all an experience the divine is having, you're not even going to use words like the devil. So uh, I'm not insulting your grandmother. She believes whatever she was taught. And I was taught things too, but I have moved on and I hope your grandmother moves on too. So thank you for your note. Uh, and uh, if you do listen to the show clearly because you sent me this this uh, lovely letter, uh, don't let your grandmother be around when we do the tarot agogo section later on. All right. Thank you, chap from Owensboro in Kentucky. 
And moving on, we have a note here from Dwayne. Dwayne is from Chicago. Oh, I do love Chicago. It's very cold, though. Okay, so Dwayne writes, Is it possible for humans to choose to reincarnate as animals? And if so, why would they do that? Oh, great question, Dwayne. Well, yes, it is. The correct term for it is uh, metempsychosis. It's a, a philosophical term taken, of course, from the Greek language. The transmigration of a soul from one species to another. Why would anyone choose to do that? Hmm. Well, I guess the same reason they would choose to do anything. But, uh, you know, I suppose it's to experience something new. That's what cosmic creation is all about, isn't it? Having the guts to try out new things on new worlds, in new personalities, under different scenarios. Having the guts to get out there and suck at something new. Uh, I must admit, you know, the, the thought of being a dog, that would be sucking at something new for me. Although I have to say, I've toyed with the idea of reincarnating as an animal from time to time. I found it intriguing. But then I gave it serious thought. And then I spent a few days pet sitting a friend's dog. And I decided I probably wouldn't cope well with certain aspects of canine personal hygiene. Now, I won't go into details, uh, but I'm sure you know what I mean. So uh, thank you for the question, Dwayne. And thank you for recognizing that animals have individualized evolving souls. And thank you for bringing up uh, the question of transmigration of souls. There's so much out there. Uh, you know, religion puts it into a little box and says, this can happen, this can't happen. Anything can happen. That's cosmic creation. When the Big Bang happened and, and we all banged and then we rode out on bits of string theories and all of that, we didn't know what was going to happen, did we? We didn't know we'd end up on this little planet in this particular universe, in this solar system. We didn't know there'd be a 7-Eleven down the road. I mean, we just make it up as we go along. Anything's possible. Thank you, Dwayne, and everybody out there who, if you think animals don't have souls, grow up, expand your mind, expand your vision a little bit, please. All right, what's next in the sorting hat? Yes, okay. So this next question is from Richard. Ooh, this is a long one. Okay, let's take a look at this. Mm, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to have a, a sip of my martini for this. Hang on. Mm, yum, yum. Okay, Richard, he says, Suburban Shaman, hi. I'm having difficulty with the concept that all points in space and time are the same. If it's all happening at the same time, how do we explain having past lives? Surely time travel is not possible if it's all simultaneous. But what about things like reported time slips and time warps? And what is meant by beyond time and space? I must admit to being confused. Can you help? <laughs> no pressure, Richard. Cheers for that. Um, well, it's a darn good question. And I'm going to have to say we all have trouble with that particular theory because it's mind-blowing. So let's tackle this. 
If all points in time and space are the same, well, then how, how indeed can we have past lives, present lives and future lives? How do we define timelines? And if it does all exist simultaneously, doesn't that invalidate the theory of cause and effect? A theory upon which our entire evolutionary history is based. I mean, does anyone know the answer to these questions or are we figuring it all out as we go along? Now, if, as I believe, time is a sense of chronology created for our convenience once we, as a cosmic collective, created physical worlds, then the simultaneous theory has validity. But then that begs the question, how or is time travel possible? Because if we look at the science fiction version of time travel, well, clearly, well, not clearly, nothing's clear in science, but I believe it contradicts the laws of cosmic creation. And if if we could go back in time and undo what we've done, well, then it wasn't done, was it? And then there's nothing to undo. So what do we make of all that? Hmm. Well, perhaps we could take into account that different realms have different rates of vibration. Physical realms are slower in rate. And, well, perhaps it takes more time to access events on those realms and so it seems that we're going back in time when actually it's just a playback at a certain speed. Does that make sense? If we pursue that line of thought, then we need to consider that despite popular opinion, a sense of time exists also on astral planes and it's not just for physical planes. Now, as you've probably gathered by my response, Richard, I am not by any stretch of the imagination a quantum physicist. I'm more your history, geography, theology type. But I think pondering those points, really pondering them, might lead us to a better understanding of how it all works. There's no such thing as settled science, is there? So I can only talk from experience. And what I would say is I know from my work with energy fields and by that, I don't mean I work for NASA. I mean, I'm a shaman that does land and space clearing, energy work, that type of thing. So when I view the physical past, the information comes to me at a fairly slow rate. When I view the potential of future events, I'm presented with various scenarios that come to me at a faster rate, but not super fast. And when I'm involved with higher dimensional beings, be they astral or physical, sometimes the information is transmitted to me so quickly, I struggle to process it and can't get the words out fast enough for clarity. As for time slips, time warps, that's really interesting to me. Um, there are many documented and, in my opinion, unimpeachable instances of such things. Metaphysicians talk of places where the veil is thin, 
where it's possible to slip into a completely different reality. I can't explain it in any way that would satisfy a scientist, but I have had first-hand experience of such things. There are energy streams that cross space and time. And I'm not talking about um, projecting your mind to a certain place or time. You know, with some training, that's actually uh, an easy one. I'm talking about something along the lines of, say, someone from 1772 turning a corner and finding themselves in 2019. That does happen. I've seen it. I've experienced it. So all these energy streams, these gateways, these doorways to other times, um, what are they? Are, are they indeed doorways or are we teleported? I can't answer that question because it all happens so quickly. Uh, one of my more recent experiences, you know, one moment you're standing in a medical office in Tigard, Oregon, an unremarkable location in Greater Portland, standing there making an appointment. And the next moment, you're in a dark and densely wooded area, damp and mossy with some very surprised animals staring at you because you just appeared out of the ether. You're dressed in your 21st century togs. You know, you're holding your day runner. You've got a cell phone. Nothing about you has changed, just the environment. Now, thanks to my training, I know how to find my way home from such situations. So after taking in the scenery for about 10 minutes, I returned to my original location and timeline. No harm done, except for a, a slightly irritated receptionist. Uh, my 10 minutes in the woods apparently was just a few seconds of my distraction in her office. Can I explain why that happened on that particular day at that time? I can't. I've visited that office regularly for 14 time-slip-free years. I just know that it happened, and it's happened more than once. And when I've cleared land and space, things have come in and disappeared, and I have no explanation other than it's some sort of energetic slipstream. Slipstream, try saying that after a martini. As for how to explain beyond space and time, is there anything beyond space and time? Perhaps it's what we refer to as source energy, the pool of potential from which all things come. It shares its essence to enable the creation of the cosmos within which we all have individualized experiences. That's the best I can come up with, Richard, um, and I thank you for your question. We should all ponder the seemingly imponderable because it shatters the illusion that our humanity is all there is. We are so much more than just humans. So our next question is from Claire in Central Oregon, who asks, what happens to your soul when you commit suicide? Do you go to a dark place or do you go to heaven? My mother committed suicide recently. I have no sense of her. She does not come to me in dreams, even though I have asked her to do so repeatedly. I would like to know that she is safe. No one in the family believes she did this intentionally. It was the medication she was on. It changed her. We all loved her very much. We are heartbroken. 
Oh, my darling Claire, I assure you, everyone goes to heaven, regardless of the circumstances of their transition. Everyone is received with unconditional love and given all the care they need. So if your mum was under the influence of the medication, she didn't know what she was doing. So she was received in one of the spirit hospitals in heaven, what I call the MASH units, the Mobile Angel Spiritual Hospitals. You know, the beings there, they're wonderful, and they will nurse her back to help, uh, to health, and they'll help her to recover her personality memory. And once she's stable, and the ill effects of the medication have been washed clean, she will meet with her guides and continue her soul's evolution. And the reason you have no sense of her right now is because she has no sense of herself yet. This is all very, very recent. So once that's fixed and she has her personality memory back, and she will, it will be fixed. Once she's stable, she will find it easier to send herself to you. So be patient. It will help you um, and your family, I think, to do something called holding an immaculate concept for her. And that's really very simple. Imagine your mother happy with a little smile on her face and surround her with an aura of a brilliant, brilliant, radiant white light. And as you breathe, just say nine times, you are as perfect as the moment of your creation. It takes about a minute. That's holding an immaculate concept. And ask every member of your family to do that. And if each one of you do that once a day for one minute, it will really help her recovery because the words in any language that you choose, the words you are as perfect as the moment of your creation, that's magic because you can't say anything else that's truer. We all of us at our core are as perfect as the moment of our creation. So that will help you and it will help her. My love to you, deep, um, deep love, grief is a deeply personal process. We all come to it in our own way and in our own time, but process it we must. And uh, don't put that off. When the time feels right, deal with the grief, because it is actually difficult for people on the other side to approach the living who have too much unresolved grief. It's a vibrational block. So God bless you and your family, and God bless your mother. I promise you all is well. <clears throat> so here's another question, and this one is from Noel in New Zealand. And Noel says, Arnie, I've been told that ETs who want to help us are able to build fully. You have bad handwriting, sir. Um, oh, yeah. They're able to build fully functioning human bodies and inhabit them for the duration of their stay on Earth. Is this true? It sounds crazy to me. But the person who told me is far from crazy, so I thought I would ask. Also, what do they do when they come down dressed as humans? Are they cultural anthropologists doing field research? <laughs> mm. Okay. Well, Noel, your friend is correct, actually. Uh, this does happen. There are beings from advanced civilizations who build and inhabit fully functional human bodies. It takes them about six months or so to acclimatize to the body. Human bodies are much smaller than ET bodies and much more dense. And most of that time is spent in stages on their motherships, uh, the motherships. 
So when the time comes for E.T. boots on the ground, they make a quiet entrance for a final field test and then get on with whatever they came down to do. So now some of them, well, some of them may be uh, cultural anthropologists conducting field research, but my intel says they're here to make a direct impact to support the White Hats. Uh, they're able to create identities and histories that place them in useful positions. And, you know, why not? Um, our own military and government intelligence organizations do that all the time, I mean, creating new identities and histories, not making alien bodies. So it's not such a leap to think that our benevolent ET friends, who are far more advanced in tech and in everything than our intelligence peeps, um, would do it. You know, once in a while, I have to say, um, I come across a person whose chakra system is clearly not a good match for their physical body. And I have to ask myself, without making it obvious, who the heck are you and where is your home world? So, hey, Noel, you know, we say the truth is often stranger than fiction, and it is. So thanks for your question, my Kiwi friend. I, I wish I knew something in Maori, um, but I don't. So cheers, Noel. And uh, here's another question. Yes, questions, questions. Yes, one more question or two more questions. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how we go. So here's another. Oh, Lord, do I want to answer this one on the air? <laughs> Every time I answer a question about a living politician, I get dozens of unsubscribes. So I guess some of you are not as open-minded as you pretend to be. Ah, oh well, here goes nothing. One more time, let me state, I'm neutral and non-partisan because I know full well that both parties are in the can. This question is from Cerise, who lives in or is vacationing in Orange in France. Hmm, I think that's an old Roman town. I seem to remember driving through it once on my way to, to Avignon. Oh, yes, Avignon. Sur le pont d'Avignon. On y da. Anyway, never mind. School, school stuff. Uh, childhood memories. Moving along. Uh, Cerise, what is your question before I get carried away here? Yes. Cerise says, Dear Arnie, <clears throat> is Barack Obama a black hat or a white hat? I wrestle with this. My gut says he is white, but his actions say black. We had such high hopes for him, and now we have Trump. Well, here's my nonpartisan shaman's answer, because Cerise, I too had very high hopes for him. Okay, Obama's soul is a high-level soul. He was brought in specifically to stabilize the country, once the truth about deep state was exposed. Now, clearly that didn't happen because the awakening of the populace is approximately 10 years behind projections. Had the poop hit the pavement in 2009 or thereabouts as projected, Obama would have been the perfect stabilizer and caretaker for the nation. Instead, the establishment were relentless, I would say, in their persecution of him. They threatened him and his family from the very first day in office, and they kept it up and they ramped it up until his tenure ended. Even a high-level soul has to work through the filter of a bloodline's biological information. In other words, he had to work through his adopted humanity, and I believe it is a testament to his grace and devotion to duty given the vile psychological treatment he was subjected to, that he maintained 
composure and was committed throughout his entire tenure. Mm. You know, those arrogant, ego-bloated sociopath servants of deep state, they really thought themselves victorious when they threatened him and they muted him. They thought themselves untouchable. And they did a good job because Obama couldn't do 2% of what he came to do. Well, I guess deep state are the ones who are running scared now because they might have been able to control Obama, but they can't control Trump. Oh, God help us. And you know what? I think we have to be grateful for that because when you become president or prime minister or whatever it is that you are, they take you upstairs and they say, congratulations. From this moment on, we own you. You will do whatever we tell you to do or we will veto every move you make up to and including your restroom breaks. And if you disobey us, we will murder your family and we will murder you. Unless, of course, we decide to clone you instead. So, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Very Important Person, enjoy your hollow victory because you work for us now. In order to stay in power and use your power for the good of your country independently from the sociopath globalist overlords, you have to know the game and own the game. And when they put you through hell, you have to walk through hell like you own the place, like Vladimir Putin does. Or you can be an outsider like Donald Trump, with an ego equal to the globalist scumbags and a very strong tunnel vision sense of self. You know, when they took Trump upstairs and gave him the talk, he sniggered and he told the establishment, well, to go indulge in some vigorous self-copulation while he made his plans to bring them down to drain the swamp. When they took Putin upstairs, he nodded his head and pretended to agree while he plotted to bring them down and drain the swamp. Donald Trump never wanted to be president. This is not some pre-birth agreement or, or long-standing uh, heavenly soul contract. Believe me, I've asked. It's not. He stepped in. He made a new contract to step in because things were completely out of hand. Both parties were broken. The Clintons sold their souls to deep state ideology and conned everyone into thinking that they were the good guys. Trump was never supposed to be president. He never wanted it. He always thought it was a very mean-spirited arena. Why go into politics when you can just run around and make tons of money? You know, it was supposed to be Bernie Sanders. It would not have been an easy run for Bernie, but up in the ethers, whenever we remote viewed or did astral journey, shamanic journey, whatever you want to call it in your corner of the world, it was supposed to be Bernie. Whenever we talk to our ET friends, it was supposed to be Bernie. Bernie understands Deep State. He's committed to bringing down the establishment. His approach is different to Trump's. But it was supposed to be him. Not Trump. But Hillary Clinton persuaded him, and I use that word jokingly, not to run as an independent. And I do regret the fact that he chose to, to give in to her threats, I suppose, or take her advice, however you want to take it. So now we do have the bull in the china shop, and that's good because so much needs to be smashed up. You know, at this point, with a brainwashed populace running around like a bunch of headless chickens screaming at each other, I would gladly take Cersei Lannister as president if I was sure she was committed to draining the swamp. 
No one was more surprised than I was that this turned out the way that it did. But anyway, I hope that cleared up a few things. That's what I know about Obama. That's what I know about Trump. And that's what I know about Sanders. And like it or not, Trump is part of a group sworn to expose and bring down deep state. Um, not much we can do but go with it. At least he's committed to it. And that's really very, very important. Okay. All right. Well, we do have more questions, but I think perhaps it's time to uh, to do something a little bit more lighthearted. How about a tiny pat of poetry? <laughs> yes, folks. After a hard day shamaning, I like nothing better than to come home, put my feet up, have a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo and write really bad non peer reviewed poetry. Hey, why have Shakespeare and literary prowess when you can have Cosmic Arnie and a whole lot less? So I had some nice comments about my E.T. poems from the last show. So here's a few more. I think last show we presented E.T. poems number one, two and three. And today we have E.T. poems four, five and six. So, uh, hey. Hold on to your tinfoil hats, because I currently have 300 of these little green gems on the books. This is what happens when you drink martinis, people. You become like the little guy on Game of Thrones. You sip and you know things. Okay, here goes nothing. E.T. poem number four, The Moon Landings. Many say the moon landings were faked. We say that story is only half-baked. Just as you feared, the truth is quite weird. And truth, it's not something to which you humans are geared. You came, you landed, you were reprimanded and left empty-handed. The moon is not yours, the moon cannot be branded. The landing was real, but the footage is fake. And by the way, good luck finding the original take. Moving on to E.T. poem number five, Romulan Ale. This one is for Star Trek fans, uh, primarily. If you're not familiar with Star Trek, oh my God, what kind of a person must you be? Ah, oh, but anyway, if you're not familiar with Star Trek, the Romulans are a race of advanced beings with funny ears, and they're famous for their strong and very blue beer. E.T. Poem number five, Romulan Ale. Oh, perfect pint, azure resplendent, with just one sip, I am transcendent. Oh, sacred beer, oh, otherworldly hops, in my native tongue, thou art knockout drops. And now it's time for E.T. poem number six, The Science Fiction Contradiction. Thank you very much. Earthlings, the dark cabalists have misled you. Theirs is a false agenda. Remove them, for they are pretenders. We will not dissect your frontal lobes. 
We will not perform the anal probe. We have no interest in your brains or butts. They are, quite frankly, inferior. And you, dear humans, are all nuts. Well, that was a bit of fun, wasn't it? You know, I uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, may I take this opportunity to say hello and thank you to our space family out there doing their best to keep Mother Earth safe from the depravity of those who walk upon her. I long for the day when you can land your craft in full view and greet us without causing mass hysteria. That would be just ever, ever so lovely. All right. So now I have regaled you with my E.T. Poems and half of you have gone home and decided not to listen to the rest of the show. (laughs) I think it's time to move on because somehow we're quickening here. Time is really moving on. It's time for da 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 tarot a go go. Yes, folks, a little shenanigana with the major arcana. Today's card is number eight fortitude, strength. What a delightful card this is, if I may say so. A young woman, pretty young woman, interacting with a fully grown male lion. In fact, in the Rider Waite deck, she's actually not just embracing him, but closing his mouth, it seems. And above her head is the infinity symbol. And the meaning is quite clear. With cosmic alignment, all things are possible. This young woman has enchanted the lion. What does this card say to us? Let's have a sip of this vodka and see. It's coming to me now. It says inner strength is more powerful than brute force. Conquer your emotions. Tap into the flow of unconditional love the vibration through which all life is created. This card says to me, patience, patience, believe in yourself, tame the beast within. Diplomacy is a better approach than giving into your animal instincts. We are humans. Arbitration, not attack. Tenderness, not threats. If we pick this card, you know, as a random card in the reversed position, I would say we should examine our motives. And if we feel we are in alignment and we have chosen the correct option, well, then let's not lose our nerve and give in. Let's not resort to screaming and shouting. No matter how tempting, let's stick to the path of tact and diplomacy And we can keep refining our position if necessary, changing the vocabulary. And sometimes we have to say the same things 100 ways from Sunday to get through to people. But if we stick to our guns, tact, diplomacy, kindness, we will succeed. And for those of you who just pick a random card once in a while, you know, it's difficult. Uh, what, What is this card saying to me? It has just so many... So many meanings, uh, depending on the day. But when you just pick this card for a little hit of guidance on any given day, it could also represent your own shadow self. 
the eternal quest to let the spirit inhabit the human. Number eight, strength. Very beautiful card. All the cards are wonderful. They're all part of the great journey. They all have something to teach us. I like this one a lot, um, probably because I do energy work with exotics and I work with very large lions. So maybe that's what it is. But I like the the visual imagery of the beautiful young maiden taming the male lion, embracing it through gentleness and kindness. That's the way forward. Okay. Number eight, fortitude, strength. Okay, my darlings. Next on our list for today, it's, ah, do-do-do-do-do-do. It's time for the wizard's gizzard a little spiritual ritual that you can make habitual. Except, guess what? We're not doing that today. No, we're not. (laughs) No, instead, we are doing explore your intuitive core. You know, we're all psychic. It's not some divine gift bestowed upon a few worthy individuals. There isn't some big fairy in the sky sprinkling magic dust over the chosen ones All are chosen, all are special, no one is special, all are special. Everyone has intuitive ability. We just need a little bit of training and we need to learn focus. So today's exercise is called, oh my God, what am I feeling? Yes, you've guessed it, folks. It's psychometry, sensing by touch. The word psychometry means... What does it mean? Uh, It means the measure of the soul. Souls leave energy imprints and we can read those through touch. We pick up information about an object and about the object's history by holding it. So it's, of course, well, I suppose it's another form of uh, another form of clairsentience, isn't it, really? Uh, And it's a skill set taught to students at the very beginning of their training, people who come to do mentorship with me, spiritual mastery program, all of that. uh, Psychometry is the beginning building block. So how do we do it? Why do we do it? Just to get information. Look, everything to do with developing an intuitive skill set is about connection. Using all your senses on the physical realm to negotiate the physical realm is wonderful. But you also have those senses interdimensionally on other realms. So it's all about connection. So first thing that we do with psychometry, and this is like the the 101 version, choose the object you will be reviewing. Now, peeps, I suggest you pick something that someone in your tribe can verify. You know, a letter from a dead relative Uh, something that belonged to Uncle Bob or Auntie Vera, that sort of thing. Because in the early stages of developing your intuition, we're very insecure, aren't we? And we need validation in those early stages. So pick something that someone can verify for you. And the exercise is very simple. First of all, wash your hands. Then drink some water. Sit comfortably. Place the object on a table in front of you. And as with all exercises, take several deep, slow, purposeful breaths. Because this clears the energy field of all your disruptions 
and it allows clear communication. Take the object in your hands and hold it and breathe. Focus on the object. Don't try too hard. Don't sort of stare at it and go, oh, my God, I'm staring at this thing. What is it? Just hold it in your hands. Just be aware that the object that, that's in your hands is your primary and only focus at this time. And as you breathe, just let the information flow through you. I mean, you might receive images, voices, feelings, um, sensations, symbols. We all receive in, uh, in different ways. And just let the information flow. Don't dismiss anything. Don't try to edit anything. Don't try to intellectualize anything. It's not a contest. When you're learning a skill set, you've just got to let it happen. Remember, when you do this, you're the observer of these images, of these sensations. You're the observer of the information that you're receiving. You're not the receiver. You're an observer. In other words, you observe, you do not absorb. Hold it for, say, three minutes, five minutes. Just set a time and go with it. And then put it down, if you wish, and write down your impressions. And again, don't edit them or try to make sense of them, no matter how odd they might feel to you. Just record the information, as uh, Officer Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And when you feel that you've received all that you will receive about this particular object for now, put the object down and wash your hands again. Get into good habits. Now you're free to verify the information. Go and talk to your auntie or your uncle and go, OK, this is what I got about this letter. This is what I got about grandma's brooch. What can you tell me? How much of it is true? And most people are very surprised to discover how accurate they are, even after their first attempt. And I have to say with all these things, please don't be afraid to be wrong. <laughs> We're all wrong. No one's 100 percent accurate, even the, the best intuitives in the world. You know, it probably means that your energy wasn't clear enough to receive accurately. So if you spend more time breathing deeply and drink more water, you'll see a significant improvement on your next attempt. That's all it is. That's all there is to it. And that's all there is this week from Explore Your Intuitive Core. And I think we have just enough time to introduce you to... La 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 la, Plato chips, yes, where we highlight and quote a philosopher of note. So I really thought about it this week. Um, should I do a female? Should I do someone ancient? Should I do somebody obscure? So instead I thought I'd just do somebody that I resonate to for various reasons. And this week's choice is, uh, George Gurdjieff, 20th century philosopher and mystic of Greek and Armenian heritage. God help you, sir. So uh, who was this chap and what is he known for? Where was he born? He was born in Gumri in Armenia, and he was born 1866, and he died uh, 1949. Um, 
Nuit Sourcien in France. Um, so he was George Ivanovich Gorgiev. I have to say, probably one of the most influential spiritual teachers of the 20th century. He went on expeditions to places like Afghanistan, uh, and he wanted to research ancient wisdom. And he was very secretive about the origins of the ancient wisdom that he discovered. A lot of his, not a lot, but okay, a major part of these uh, explorations that he had are documented in his book, Meetings with Remarkable Men. He's, again, doesn't tell you everything in that, but it seems that he went to strange places and met secret brotherhoods and he got ancient information. And how do you translate that to the 20th century? So what he did, he formulated a type of palatable language for 20th century man. And he called the collection of these disciplines that he learned the fourth way, which is basically a blend of many traditional ancient teachings. And he took this to Russia at the time and started to share some of this knowledge with people. But then there was this pesky little thing called the Bolshevik Revolution. And then there was the First World War. Anyway, long story short, he ends up in France where he starts the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man, teaching this fourth way. But it was difficult for him to do so, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily because it's not a protocol set in stone. It's a different type of self-development. And he was not easy to work for, apparently. I mean, he worked very hard to explore and to discover all of this knowledge. And he wasn't about to give it away, all this precious knowledge to the curious and the unworthy, was he? So if you wanted to study with him, well, I guess he had to jump through hoops to get this wisdom. And, and, and so did you, which is fair enough, I suppose. Yeah, this fourth way, it's, it's rather the same way as I was trained. Um, the knowledge, it's a path. And you weave it into your aura. And as the knowledge seeps into you and you understand it, you actually become the ancient truths. And the ancient wisdom is embodied in you. And then you have to express it. You have to express these timeless truths in a contemporary and suitable way. Um, they do say that he ran across uh, some very ancient teachings called the Mirk Havat, which Armenians and Syrians know about. Uh, it's a very ancient uh, esoteric way of life. Uh, and he apparently found that when he was in the city of Ani. Uh, yes, folks, I am named after the city of Ani there on the Armenian-Turkish border. Anyway, he studied with many people, but the, the primarily the Sarmoon Brotherhood. This is the place in Hindu Kush in northern Afghanistan, or is it? This is a mystical group of people who have been around since, oh my gosh, Babylonian times, from the time of Hammurabi. And the word Sarmoon means bee, as in bzz bzz bee. Uh, also, it could also mean something to do with Zoriaster. But the Sarmuni think of themselves as bees in so much as they parcel out the information to the populace that is needed at that time. They say that the object that any objective knowledge is a material substance that can be collected and stored like honey. 
and that brotherhood say that they have the history of the entire earth. And at critical times in history, they will distribute their honey throughout the world by means of specially trained agents. And one of these people uh, apparently was John Bennett, who um, who did the whole Enneagram thing and the law of seven, um, you know, and the doctrine of reciprocal maintenance, all of that. So in brief, because I think we're coming up to the end of our time with Gurdjieff, what he wanted, what his mission was to be the best he could be and to encourage others to do the same. You know, the teachings that he took, he turned them into something palatable for 20th century minds. The fourth way, it's it's a it's an influence more than a teaching. It's not a solid set of instructions. So I urge you to take a look at his books, because once you explore him, it will lead you to discover wonderful Near Eastern mysticism, which there's so much Greco-Roman bias in our part of the world and certainly in Europe where I'm from that people tend to miss out on all of the rest of the world and the Near Eastern mysticism, not that, you know, that I'm biased being Armenian race ancestry, but it's overlooked. And because it's overlooked, there's a, there's a purity to it. That's amazing. So get out there and explore Gurdjieff. And here's the quote of his, that gets my vote. Oh God, where is it? Oh, here it is. Okay. Without self-knowledge, Without understanding the working and functions of his machine, man cannot be free. He cannot govern himself, and he will always remain a slave. There he is, people. Good, Jeff. Get out there and research him. Okay, doing a little time check here, and oh my gosh. Well, my darlings, I think we've done it. I think we've used up an entire hour of linear time, an hour we will never get back. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. Today's Real Life Martini was carefully crafted by yours truly, using Jewel of Russia Ultra Limited Edition Vodka, and I must say, this is quite a treat for me, as I could never afford this level of luxury. This was a gift from a client. My favorite new client, in fact. It's a mix of winter wheat and rye, and Lord only knows what extra steps they've taken in the filtration process, because this is hands down the best vodka I have ever tasted, and in my younger years, I was pretty good in the vodka tasting department. A reminder, folks, the cocktails are great and best when they are an occasional treat. If you use high-quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously... One drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Music.